but they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. I got baptized at uh, Lake Minnetonka. Uh, I hit a couple backflips. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. My swag was having no swag. Hello, everyone, and welcome into another installment here of the Minnesota Sports Podcast for the 12th of October here on this Tuesday. How's it going? I'm CJ Baumgartner diving into the latest in Minnesota sports here for the day. And I want to start off here with the Minnesota Vikings here. And I know yesterday we were pretty hard on Mike Zimmer. Uh, Ian joined the podcast, great guest. Uh, we, we were very critical of Zimmer, and not unfairly, I would say, but just we very much, and I've been somebody who's been very pro-Zimmer. Ian isn't necessarily anti-Zimmer, but he's shied away more from the Zimmer camp than I have. And we just kind of vented our frustrations with where the head coach is at and the non-aggressiveness and just kind of the desperation and not all his fault, but some his fault, just the desperation that they're in to win right now. And that, that may, desperate times call for desperate moves. And sometimes the desperate moves aren't always the best ones to make. And it's kind of put Zimmer in the position he's in with trying to cut corners on fixing the defense and just trying to supplement it with free agents instead of doing it the you know, the the old-fashioned way, the traditional way, which is getting draft picks, building them up, putting them together, and then using those free agents as icing on the cake or supplemental pieces and not the core pieces. And I think that's been the thing that's kind of bitten them this year, when especially when it's come to Mike Zimmer's part, which has been the defense and the non-aggressiveness on offense and everything. So that was kind of our whole argument. If you want to hear more about how we talked about Mike Zimmer and we're, you know, if you're somebody who is very more critical of Zimmer and you want to hear what we had to say, go back to yesterday's podcast and uh, check that out. But I want to talk a little bit in defense of Zimmer here. Um, and I I just want to say, yeah, he's not put himself in a bad spot, and that's been largely due to himself. And I'm not trying to absolve him or try and say that he's been perfect. I'm not trying to do the, the Kirk Cousins uh, diehards on Twitter. I mean, you know, there Zimmer has some blame. He has a lot of blame, and there's a good chance he gets fired this year, and I wouldn't say that it's the Vikings will be making a ginormous mistake by moving on at the end of this season. But in defense of Mike Zimmer, I think we need to be a little bit, we need to give him a little bit of credit here. Mike Zimmer isn't the main issue with this team. Now, he's led to issues with the team, sometimes his abrasive style towards the players, and his kind of more... I want it, the right word is just the more focus on defense at times and the conservative play calling and everything. Don't get me wrong, but he's not been the main issue with this team. The main issue with this team is that they really lack an identity. And maybe you can say it's because their identity shouldn't be in defense and they're trying to make it be a defense run game first team. They probably need to lean more into being a passing first team. I've mentioned that on the podcast here before, but Zimmer's not the main issue with this team. The issue is that they don't have an identity. Their offensive line is a mess. They've had some kicking issues go the wrong way. You know, whatever you want to say, Zimmer isn't the main issue with this team. They've had issues with quarterback trying to get some consistency there. Not trying to throw Cousins under the bus, but ever since Zimmer has been here, the quarterback situation has been up and down since Teddy's since Teddy tore his ACL. And he's been a stable head coach for the most part 
through his time in Minnesota. Despite all the dysfunction around him, remember uh, Zimmer's first season, he had to deal with the Adrian Peterson suspension. And then in 2016, it was the Teddy injury. It was everybody getting hurt. It was his eye nearly falling out. You know, all of that kind of stuff. Zimmer has gone through adversity before, and let alone when he was in Cincinnati when his wife died in the middle of the season. So Zimmer is somebody who handles adversity. Zimmer is somebody who's stable. He's been around the block a time or two, and he's not the main issue with this team. And what I mean by that is, just firing Zimmer isn't automatically going to make the Vikings a playoff contender. And I think it's the exact opposite. I think firing Zimmer signals that it's time to tear down, take two steps back, and try and go forward. It would mean, you know what, it's time that we move on from this, or that it's time that we readjust how we're doing. Let's get a new quarterback, let's refix the team, and honestly, it might mean Spielman's leaving. Uh, so, I think... Zim, fix getting rid of Zimmer isn't going to fix the team. Even if, let's say Spielman kept his job, let's say they kept Kirk Cousins in at quarterback, and let's say they brought in a new head coach. There is no guarantee that things just get better from there. Absolutely no guarantee that things work out from that point on. And maybe they do, but maybe they don't. And we've seen this happen with teams in the division. You know, you could be a Green Bay, and you could go from Mike McCarthy, and you could go to Matt LaFleur, who just, you know, doesn't have to do much. He just takes the team and just fit, modernizes stuff that McCarthy was unable to do. And the Packers have found kind of this rejuvenated success, made the last two NFC title games. Or, or, more likely, you end up like the Bears in 2013. They fired Lovey Smith, and they thought, you know, we need a guy to, we need to, we need to shake things up. We need to get a guy that's going to help our quarterback. We need to do that. They hire Mark Tressman. He shanks, sinks the ship. And then you hire John Fox after that. Continues to sink the ship. And Matt Nagy, the jury's still out on him. He was gifted a very good defense. But you look at over in Detroit. You look at when they fired Jim Caldwell. They were like, we need a guy who is going to take us to the next level. The Lions were kind of plateauing and we needed a guy to take us to the next level. And Matt Patricia took him to a new level. The problem is Matt Patricia took him to a new low. And I know that you can say, well, Detroit's a dysfunctional organization and the McCaskies in Chicago aren't necessarily great owners either. But I mean, you've seen it time and time again with teams making a head coaching change thinking that it's going to turn them around or take them to the next level. And all it does is it actually just ends up plummeting them. They actually, uh, they actually just get worse. And, you know, it's the grass is always greener on the other side. There's always, you know, it's always, well, this guy's going to come in. We fire him. He's the problem. We're going to move on. Whatever. Like firing Urban Meyer in Jacksonville. Yeah, he's the problem. He's, but he's not the main problem. Jacksonville has some serious issues. Zimmer, no, the Vikings don't have as many chaos organizational issues as the Jaguars do, obviously. But just say that, let's say the Vikings fire Zimmer and they hire Eric Bieniemy. Now, I think Bieniemy would be a good coach. I actually don't think he'd be a bad replacement for Zimmer. But to act like he all of a sudden just takes this team and now they're a playoff contender is not great. But the odds that the Vikings would hire a guy like Bieniemy, let's say that they don't hire as good of a head coach, and the team either stays where they're at or gets worse. So the grass is always greener on the other side, and Zimmer has been a stable head coach. His worst seasons have been 7-9. and nine. You remember Leslie Frazier's first year? 13, it was 3-13. and 13. They had 13 losses, and the number 3 overall pick the next season. 
He had one 10-win season, and then followed that up with five 10-1. And, and you look at some of the bad seasons under Childress, they were bad too. I, I mean, Zimmer has been, at worst, it's been mediocre to below average. Zimmer's teams have never bottomed out. So he's still a good coach. He still gets the most out of his players. And I think that we just need to give him a little bit of credit on that aspect. And as much as we talk about the relationship between Mike Zimmer and Kirk Cousins, I mean, maybe behind closed doors, things are worse. But from an outsider's perspective, I think Zimmer doesn't hate Cousins. I don't think Zimmer believes in Cousins as much as maybe he should or maybe he would like to. But there's somewhat of a relationship there. So, again, I'm not trying to say that Zimmer needs to become the head coach forever. I'm not saying he deserves an extension. I'm just saying he deserves a little bit of – just deserves a little bit of us backing off for a second here. Because keep in mind, it's always fun to hi fire the coach and bring in somebody new and do all this kind of stuff. But there's no guarantee that the next guy coming in is going to be any better. And even that with Spielman, I mean, keep in mind, you bring in a new guy – and there's no guarantee you bring in a guy that doesn't know how to scout, a guy that doesn't know how to draft, a guy that trades away all your picks. I don't know. They're, they're, the point is, is there's a lot of uncertainties. And it's always easy to pick the new interesting thing. But you just have to weigh your options a little bit more. It's not as black and white. I'm not saying Zimmer should keep his job. I'm not saying Zimmer should be fired. I'm saying we have to wait a little bit more. It's looking more like it's Zimmer's last year. But I'm not going to put the final nail in the coffin just quite yet or say that it should be celebrated. Whenever Zimmer's fired, it shouldn't be celebrated the way that some people are going to celebrate it. All right, here now moving on, I want to talk quickly with the Vikings about Brashad Breland, who is just being a moron right now. I mean, what is he doing? He's uh, obviously he's had a rough start to the season, about as rough as you can get. Vikings fans take notice, and then this guy goes and pulls a New York Mets. And whenever I say pulling in New York Mets, you know it's never a good sign. You remember in the middle of, uh, there was August this season, maybe it was September, where the Mets were booing their fans because the fans booed them, and it's and then they were like, we love the boos. And it's like, are you guys, are you guys soft in the head? I, like, it's not a great strategy to tick off the fans. Brashad Breland is going right ahead for it. He's saying he's embracing the booze, and I think they were booing him on Sunday, and he was kind of making a gesture like he wanted more of it. I mean, just, I don't get it. You're having a bad year, dude. The fans aren't the problem. You are the problem in this situation. Now, that doesn't mean everything fans say or everything fans do is right or justified or sane, obviously, but the general reaction of the fans are upset at me, so I'm just going to be upset at them right back is never a good sign. And he was being dumb when Chris Thomason of the Pioneer Press, asked him a question like, hey, you're ranked as one of the worst corners in the law. And yeah, you know, players aren't just supposed to sit there and take it all the time. But dude, you don't have a great track record to sit there and be like, I'm an all-pro corner. You're not. You're not a guy who can say, oh, well, I've done this and this. You can't just come and tell me I suck. He kind of can tell you you suck. And I know fans love it when they clap back at the reporters and, and whatever. You guys, they have a job to do in this situation. And this comes to somebody who used to work in reporting, so there's a bit of a bias there. But some of these questions you kind of have to ask. And these within every right, he didn't say just you suck. He said, look, based on these metrics, you're rated here. How do you feel about that? It wasn't like he came in and said, you're a piece of whatever and whatever. So I, Brashad Breeland, if the fan base, I mean, there's already a large part of the fan base that's turned on him. But if the whole fan base hasn't turned on him yet, it's going to very soon because this guy, 
this guy, man, I don't know. I was pretty, I wasn't excited, but I was pretty, uh, feeling pretty good, I should say, when they signed him. I was like, there you go, a Super Bowl winning corner. He can come in, be a number two, number three, kind of just a rotational guy, get some veteran experience in the room. And honestly, I want Cam Dantzler, and I'm not 100% sure about Cam Dantzler in coverage. But anything is better than Brashad Breeland at this point. So, I don't know. Moving on with the uh, play calling with the Vikings. Has the play calling been a concern? I've been talking about this with a few different people throughout the last few days. Just talking about the Minnesota Vikings and kind of what's been the deal. The offense was guns a-blazing the first, what, the first three games of the season and it looked like they were going to light the league on fire, and oh my gosh, we're going into October. It's Kirktober, all that kind of stuff. You know, Kirk Cousins usually has his best month in October, for those who don't know. And the last two weeks of the season, the offense has just been a little bit off, and when the offense is never working right, the first answer turns to the play calling most situations. And Clint Kubiak, he's a first-year offensive coordinator. He's a first-year play caller. Obviously, he's been around the league a lot. His dad has been in the league. Every, you know, whatever. You know what I mean. But at the same time, he's still learning all this. He's still going through the growing pains of being a rookie play caller. And I think Clint Kubiak has done a solid job for the most part, given the circumstances. I wouldn't say that Clint Kubiak looks like he's in over his head. I wouldn't say that he's doing stuff that's going to get him fired like John D. Filippo did, whether that was right or wrong. But when you look at Clint Kubiak, he's going through the ups and downs of being a play caller. There's going to be times, you know, you could say the first few weeks, teams didn't really know what specifically Kubiak was going to do in situation X and Y. They knew what the offense was going to look like generally, but they didn't know what was going to be called in situations here and there. Teams are starting to pick up on that. They're starting to see what the Vikings do now that they get more tape on them. But these are the adjustments that good play callers and good coaches need to make, and we'll have to see if he can learn and he can grow past them, because the last couple weeks have been some questionable play calling by Kubiak. When you look at Justin Jefferson, he had over 100 receiving yards in the first half, but he only got 20 in the second half. You basically refused to throw to him, and maybe it was because you were expecting him to be double-covered, you are expecting him to make an adjustment, so you weren't really looking for him, but you didn't find Thielen either. You weren't able to find Adam Thielen. He didn't get his catches until the very last drive of the game. And the offensive line wasn't even the issue because I think each offensive lineman only gave up about two pressures that whole game each. So I don't know really what... I don't really know exactly what the reasoning was in that. And then they couldn't run the ball either. Maybe they made an attempt to run and Detroit just sold out on the run. But if they're going to do that, just keep throwing it to Justin Jefferson. They couldn't stop him. And if they were going to load up the box, then just go to Jefferson. They're not they're not worried about you throwing, so throw. Do it there, leaving it open for either Jefferson or Thielen or somebody to make some kind of play. And maybe that's on Zimmer for wanting to be more aggressive. And we talked about that in yesterday's podcast if you want to go listen to that. Which Zimmer needs to be more aggressive. Maybe the head coach is buzzing in his ear. I don't know. I'm not in the booth. But the play calling has been a little bit of a concern. And I think I just chalk it up to Kubiak being a first-year play caller. And these are kind of the ups and downs that go with it. And you kind of just have to figure out. It's something that just takes time. There's no one thing to fix. or to, There's no one solution, especially for an armchair coach like me. 
somebody who's not in the game and somebody who's not, you know, breaking down X's and O's every day and is in with the offense. So it's something that we're just going to have to monitor over the last couple games. This next one's going to be a big one against Carolina to see what they do and to see what the Vikings have to offer in this situation offensively. Because there's going to be some stuff to, uh, there's going to be some opportunities against this Carolina team. They look more winnable each of the last couple weeks here. And again, we talked about on the podcast, the goal, get to 3-3. Three and three. If you can get to 3-3 three and three by the bye week, you are sitting in such good shape. So try and do that. Try and get to 3-3 three and three by the bye week. And if you don't, you're not making the playoffs at all. There's just not a good, there's just not a good way with the schedule, with this five-game stretch with the Cowboys, the at Ravens, at Chargers, Packers, even at 49ers. That one's looking a little more questionable, but I'm still going to still going to chalk it up as a toughie. So, that's the thing with the Vikings. And play calling is going to be an interesting thing to see. Now we talked about the offensive line. We talked about some pluses there, which was pass coverage not being as or pass uh, protection not being as bad. That doesn't mean it was perfect, and we'll talk a little bit tomorrow uh, on our What If Wednesday, uh, going through some of that. But we'll also talk about uh, Darison, if it might be the right time to start bringing him in more. Because last week, I was more in the camp of wait and see and just don't rush him in there to put him in there if he's not ready because he hasn't gotten a lot of snaps. We'll talk about it more tomorrow on tomorrow's podcast. But let's move into the Minnesota Twins here because I want to talk about them for a second here. We're going through each of the positions here. We're, we've gone through uh, catcher. We've gone through first baseman. We've gone through second baseman. Now we're moving to shortstop. And this is really where the armchair GM, the offseason speculation, that's where this gets really, really fun in this situation. Because there's a lot of options you can do here. You can go internally, which is Royce Lewis, Austin Martin, the two shortstops in air quotes. And they aren't ready yet. Royce Lewis especially because uh, because of his injuries, uh, not playing at all last season, not playing in a minor league game since 2019. So it'll be about two and a half years before it, you know, since he's last played a game before he'll get another chance to step on the field. Doubtful that the Twins feel comfortable enough moving him to the majors in that situation. So maybe not him. Austin Martin, he's played a little bit at short, played a little bit at center, as has Royce Lewis when healthy, but. Uh, he's still, you know, he played college, so he's about the same age as Royce Lewis, but he's only played one minor league season. So how quick are you to rush him up to the majors? You probably let him groom a little bit. You probably keep him down there at least for 2022 and expect him to be up and going in 2023. But there are, there are some, there, it's some intrigue with them. Now I'm basically going to rule them out as being 2022 options. And honestly, you can make a case that both of them will be moved at some point. You can make a case to say that those two aren't the shortstops of the future. Uh, We'll kind of see. We'll talk about that in a second here. But the other option is to keep Polanco, or is to move Polanco to shortstop. We talked about that with the second baseman. Just keep Polanco at second base. He's doing fine. He had a career year. Just leave him be. Don't mess with him. Let him build on this in the offseason. Just let him focus on hitting and don't make him focus on having to change positions for the second year in a row. So there's that. Nick Gordon, I don't feel comfortable putting him as a full-time player. It feels like his role is going to be that kind of super utility guy that just fills in in a bunch of different spots and is more of a reserve guy. I mean, if he was going to be a shortstop, they would have kept him at shortstop. That's what he was coming up through the minor leagues. 
Valvi and Levine, I've said it before, don't really care for Nick Gordon. He's just there because they have a young body and that's got a, they have a young, cheap body with a lot of service time. So they're not going to do anything with him. Uh, there's also the the interesting option of Jose Miranda. Now he's a guy that's been in the Twins. He's the Twins minor league player of the year, and boy, he burst out onto the scene, just smashing the ball. If you haven't uh, heard of Jose Miranda, go look up his Baseball Reference page and look at his stats for 2021 minor league season. Played most of it in St. Paul and just absolutely destroyed the baseball and got a lot of fans pretty excited about his future. He was kind of a maybe, see what develops kind of prospect, and now he's got Twins fans thinking he could potentially be a starter. Of course, he's never played a major league game yet, but he could be a guy that goes in there because Josh Donaldson is still playing third base, and that's Miranda's probable position is third base. So it kind of leaves you to wonder, well, what do they do if Donaldson's still going to be at third base? Well, I would say maybe you move Miranda over. Now, I don't think that's what the Twins do, and I really wouldn't advocate for it either because Miranda has played less and less games at shortstop every single season he's been in the minors. I think he only played two games at shortstop in St. Paul this season, so it's really not uh, really wouldn't be beneficial for the Twins to move a guy who has barely played shortstop in the minors and expect him to do well at shortstop in the big league level. I would say Miranda's most likely a third baseman or some other position around the field, but shortstop is so hard. And it's so hard to have a good shortstop. The Twins learned. You can have a guy that maybe has a good glove, but a guy who can't hit, like Andrelton Simmons, not good at all. You need a guy who can do a little bit of both. And there are a few options if they want to go. You could go the trade route, but teams are if teams have a good shortstop, they're not trading them. They're, they could go the free agent route. Now, there was a report from John Heyman that the Tigers and the Twins were interested in Carlos Correa. I think Carlos Correa stays in Houston. Uh, the playoff series that he's having with the Astros, the more I think that they try and lock him down, now the Astros do have, a, I believe, a pretty good shortstop prospect who's kind of waiting in the wings who maybe they just shoehorn in and kind of keep the chain moving along and save the money for some other guys or for some maybe offseason acquisitions. So there's a chance Correa could hit the open market. I still don't think he will. And if he does, I don't think the Twins are going to be the team signing him. I don't think the Trey Turners, the Marcus Simeons, the Trevor Stories. I don't think those guys hit the open market. And if they, or I, I should say, I don't think those guys, when hitting the open market, are going to play for the Twins. It's a very robust shortstop market. I mean, you, you just heard the names I listed off. There's a ton. This is possibly the greatest shortstop free agent class in Major League history. We're never going to get one as good as this. So the Twins could take advantage with a bunch of really good guys. There's only, you know, obviously the Dodgers aren't going to sign three shortstops to $100 million contracts. So it leaves the Twins an opportunity to kind of weasel their way into some of these negotiations. Now, do I think that they'll sign one? Probably not. I think it'd be a long shot. Now, granted, I thought Donaldson was a long shot, but there was at least a, there were less teams running to his door because of, uh, because of his age and production questions and all that kind of stuff, which he's proved wrong for the most part in terms of he's still been a productive major league player and worth his contract. But guys who are just hitting the open market for the first time, like Correa and Turner, I, I don't think so. I, I think it's very hard for the Twins to get there. Now, Chris Taylor was an option floated by Brandon Warren on Twitter, I believe, and who's been on the podcast, by the way, Brandon Warren. Uh, Chris Taylor at $10 million. Now, this is me speculating. Chris Taylor at $10 million. Seems reasonable. He's making about $7 million right now. 
um, for the Dodgers. We offer him a contract of about 10, maybe even go 12 million, somewhere in that kind of range. That seems reasonable for a player like him. Now, he's not a strict shortstop, and honestly, he hasn't played a ton of shortstop over the last couple of years. He's kind of been, I mean, the Dodgers, they just have so many different guys that can hit well and play so many different positions. It's honestly just flabbergasting that the Dodgers have not won more than a shortened season World Series last year. They, they're so talented. And Chris Taylor, one of those guys who just bounced around from position to position and maybe could make a home as the twin shortstop. And maybe you offer Taylor a two-year contract, a three-year contract, want to say, hey, the market's really, really good right now. Why don't you take a two-year deal? We'll give you a lot of money. You won't get the financial security long term, but you'll get the opportunity to hit the market again, and you just kind of play for us for a couple seasons and see how it goes. Maybe that's the route they take. That's what I would probably do, and then you could offer a little bit more money up front, especially because you don't have a bunch of big contracts on the books, depending on whether or not you can extend Byron Buxton, which I think, again, the Twins should. But Chris Taylor seems reasonable and could be a good get for the Twins because, again, he's been a big uh, bat for the Dodgers as have a lot of their uh, – this is how a lot of their hitters been for them over the last few seasons. But wouldn't it just be a classic Twins to settle and bring in a shortstop like Jose Iglesias or something? And because they know that they're probably looking for a stop stopgap in shortstop, so they just get a guy who can fill the spot for 2022 and then hope that either Lewis or Martin takes the spot in 2023. And you sign a guy like that for like $4 million. You could totally see it, can't you? But either way, I think that the Twins would be beneficial to just go pay a guy for multiple years. Because I know that there's Lewis, and I know that there's Austin Martin, but you know what you could do is you could just move them around to a different spot. Because remember, they're not locked into being the shortstop or the center fielder or whatever positions they've been trying. These guys are young and athletic. You can move them around a little bit. You have the flexibility to do that with them, and especially at a position that's so hard to be good at in the field as shortstop, if you can move them to another position and make the workload, it's not going to make it tougher for a guy to have to switch like Polanco did to second base. It's not a tough transition because second base is an easier position to play defensively. Shortstop is one of the hardest positions to play defensively. So you can move one of those guys, especially if you were able to land a guy like Taylor or Correa or whatever. Again, not saying they will, but if. I would say just worry about acquiring good talent and figure out where it fits later. And the Twins kind of did that with Josh Donaldson. Sign Donaldson. He's a good bat. We'll figure out where to put Sano. Let's put him at first base. The Twins will figure it out. I hope. So that's the way that the shortstop position is looking like here for the Twins. And it's just really a, it's a really fascinating situation. And I want to... Uh, I want to see how this one develops over the course of the winter. All right, moving on here to the Minnesota Timberwolves here. And not going to spend a ton of time on them because the regular season is starting. We'll kind of break it down a little bit more of that as the week goes on. But they played uh, one of their final regular preseason games, I should say. They have one more regular season game left. And they played one last night against the Clippers in Los Angeles. And and what's been so weird about this Timberwolves team so far this year is that 
they kind of have an identity in a sense more than you'd think that they would there's a vision with this timberwolves team and that's crazy to think considering all the chaos with gerson but the biggest thing is this wolves team they have a vision there's you can see carl anthony towns d'angelo russell Anthony Edwards coming together, you know, figuring out how to play. Any kind of player you would trade for that is icing on the cake. But, I mean, when you look at it, D'Lo has looked good running the offense, not even necessarily from a scoring perspective, which he led the Wolves in scoring last night, I believe. So, he's also just looked good as a floor general. And this Wolves team is going to score a lot of points this season. It's going to be fun to watch because you have a full offseason under Finch. You're not going to have a full season with Finch as the head coach. And you could saw the offense made leaps and bounds after the All-Star break last year when Finch really got time to sit down and kind of figure out what he wanted to do with the Wolves. And it's going to be fun to see what that's going to look like because, again, there's a vision. There's stuff that you can see that they're building towards something. Where the last couple of years, at the beginning of last season and the beginning of the year before, it was kind of just, let's go out and see what happens. And again, part of that was attributed to Rosas being in his first year or two of running the Wolves. So it was more of like, look, we're not going to be good. Let's just run out stuff. Let's figure out what we want to get. And then the Wolves, of course, made the deal for D'Angelo Russell. And then last year, Ryan Saunders was the head coach. The Wolves just kind of fell off and things weren't right and... Whatever, Rosas was able to hire his guy. There's a vision now. The pieces are together. And I know Rosas isn't here for obvious and good reason. But Sanjay Gupta running this team, they they have some pieces here. They have, they have pieces to win. And not win a lot. But not, they're not going to be like top five in the West or anything. But they could, they could be top ten. They could be top eight if they really wanted to. That's probably their peak is about a seven seed. But honestly, for a team like the Wolves, that would you can hang a banner for that one. And the last couple of years, they were just running out people on the floor and just seeing what happened and just experimenting with it, and it wasn't working. And even in the years when they had more talented teams on the floor, the Jimmy years, it was just kind of like we're all in to win this year and the next year because then Jimmy's contract is up. we got to prove to Jimmy that he should be here and – there was no long-term vision because Tibbs wasn't a long-term thinker. Tibbs was a how-can-I-win-right-now kind of guy. And five years be danged, I'm going to win in the next year or two at best. And that's really when it all came falling apart like that. There was no long-term vision with Tibbs' Wolves. There wasn't really a long-term vision with the last couple of years of Timberwolves. So it was just kind of going through the motions, trying to figure things out. There is a vision with this Wolves team. There, You can see it coming together. You can see the offense being built. You can see Nas Reed taking a big step up. You can see the role players kind of growing into their own. This team isn't going to be top five in the league. This team isn't going to be top five in the West. But you can see that they're a team that's going to have an identity around each other. And you can see that these are guys that work well playing together. And that's going to show as the season goes on. All right, wrapping this thing up, I want to talk quickly about the Gophers here. And the Gophers have some pretty tough sledding with Nebraska coming up. Nebraska is starting to figure things out. They almost beat Michigan at home last weekend. They're a tough team. Yeah, they're, what are they, 3-4 and four on the year or 2-4 and four or whatever it is. But they're, they're playing teams tough. They almost beat Michigan State on the road. In a primetime game, 
And Michigan State is in the top 10, I believe, now. And I think they were ninth at the time, and they played the ninth-ranked Wolverines over the weekend. They took it till the end at home, looked like they were going to beat them there for a second. So Nebraska has been a tough team, and I know we all rode them. We all made fun of them at the beginning of the year, especially when they lost to Illinois and everything. But they're playing well. They're, Nebraska's too talented of a team to bottom out and be very bad. So they're going to play teams tough. They also travel well, too, because keep in mind, the Gophers playing them on Saturday at Huntington Bank Stadium. They've only lost by a total of 10 points to Michigan State and Oklahoma on the road. They have no hope for a conference championship game, obviously, but they still have a lot to play for because of the uncertainty of Scott Frost, the head coach. But that defense is legit. And Martinez has been the quarterback for a couple of years now. I know it feels like the vet of Martinez forever. But he's he's not great, but he's, again, he's not a guy that you can rattle as easily. So this is going to be one where the Gophers are going to have to be on their game. Now they've had two weeks to prepare, which has been good, because this is a win the Gophers need to have. If they have this win, they can beat Maryland in a couple of weeks. They can kind of put some wins on top of each other and feel really good about how they're feeling going into the later part of the season, but this Nebraska team is not going to be as big of a rollover as maybe Gophers fans thought even just a few weeks ago. So this is going to be one that they're going to have to play very hard because Nebraska seems like they're starting to put it all together. That talent is finally starting to figure things out. The Gophers are finally, uh, or the Cornhuskers rather, are finally starting to hit their stride and they're going to blow a team out at some point. Now it'll probably be at home and it'll probably be you know, it'll pro they obviously blew out Northwestern at home, but you know what I mean is they are set to blow out a team. They are set to just completely go in someplace or welcome a team into their building and just absolutely wipe the floor with them because they are playing well right now. And give them credit as much as I don't want to give Cornhuskers credit. They are playing about as well as a team can play right now, and they've been taking tough teams like Michigan and Michigan State down to the wire so we'll have to see how Nebraska handles the rest of the season. Maybe all these losses keep getting deflating. But I think after you play a tough team like that in primetime at home, I think you go on the road, you see a team like Minnesota, you see that with the as well as your defense is playing, and without the Gophers aren't going to have pots, it's going to be tough. It's really going to be tough sledding for the Gophers if they want to do anything. But there is still a path in that Big Ten West. Iowa's probably going to win it. I don't want Iowa to. They I don't like seeing Iowa in the playoff. That's from a Minnesotan perspective, but it'll be what it'll be. And I think Nebraska is going to have a lot to say about the Big Ten West because they still have to play a lot of Big Ten West teams, and they could beat the Gophers and ruin their chances. They could further cement Wisconsin into the ground. They could mess up Iowa. I don't know if they play Iowa later in the season, but they have that potential where to just derail somebody's season. And they almost did that for Michigan. They almost did that for Michigan State in terms of their conference title hopes. So it'll be interesting to see down the wire. Man, that Big Ten East. Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State. That's going to be a fun one to watch. And the Big Ten West is over there going, Can somebody beat Iowa? So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the course of the rest of the season. All right, well, that'll do it for us here on the Minnesota Sports Podcast. We have What If 
or what about them Wednesday, I should say, coming up tomorrow. What about them Wednesday, tomorrow, and much more here on the Minnesota Sports Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.